Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice and abundance. And my name is Goose. And on today's show, Gabby and I talk about how to manage interest rate rises in your property portfolio. So we took at it from a, looked at it from a couple of different angles. We looked at it from the mindset perspective, how to think about uh, how to operate in this environment, but also some like tips and kind of ideas on how you could potentially think about approaching it. Everything from expanding your portfolio to make up the shortfall through to small tactical things, such as potentially doing a renovation, looking at rental increase, increases, uh, putting cash in offset, loads of different stuff like that. So if you want to know all of this kind of stuff, then of course, you've got to listen to the whole episode. Uh, I think it was pretty good because um, currently right now, you know, I genuinely believe that we're in a pretty good environment, but we can get caught and fixated on small things that don't make necessarily big impacts on our long-term strategy. So if you want to know how to succeed in this environment, how to change your thinking a little bit so that you too can adapt and be successful regardless of what the interest rate uh, environment is doing, then this is the episode for you. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're joining Goose and Gabby today. Gabby, how are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very, very well. Wonderful. Um, how are you feeling? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I was feeling a bit crook yesterday to be transparent with everyone, but <laughs> I woke it up today going, hmm, those 17 hours of sleep I managed to randomly pull out yesterday have helped. So yeah, I'm feeling okay. Okay, well, that's how good. Are you? I'm good. I'm actually I'm excited actually. There's um mm. there's a lot there's a lot to be excited about personally, I think. And I might actually I might actually dig into that. So last time we spoke, last time we spoke, mm. um I said something at like around in the episode I I was very I said something like along the lines of like I think that we're going to go into a recession or or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to clarify that. I thought about it afterwards. I thought about it after we recorded. And I was like, did I did I actually clarify my intent with that statement? And I'm not sure that I did. And I thought it would be worth just quickly before we jump into the into the content for this episode, just kind of getting some shape around that. What that I mentioned in what yeah, what I mentioned in the last time last time we spoke is I said I was pretty confident that rates will come down in the next in the next 24 months, right? I'm still very I'm mm-hmm. still quite confident about that. But also said, like, I think it's likely that we're going to go into a recession. And I think that that could actually sound quite alarming to people. Yeah, um, probably. But there's, and so I kind of want to clarify a couple of things because number one, firstly, I, I don't have a crystal ball, right? So um, sometimes I get excited and I'm like, yeah, this is going to happen. And it's like, well, maybe it might happen, <laughs> but it also might not. <laughs> but, it, but also the other point that I was, I think the point that I was trying to make is that there's a massive difference between a technical recession which is quite possible. Like it's quite possible. How likely is it? I don't know. But a technical recession is very different from what we would think about as a, as like a, a real recession, right? Where people are losing their jobs and businesses are failing and everything's kind of going bad. And the point that I was making is that in the process of speeding up and slowing down an economy, there's there's probably going to be a transition moment where at some point you're going to be you'll move from going fast to, to going slow or or try and re, rebalance that equilibrium. So on a technical like GDP basis, we might actually like technically hit that kind of hit the big mm-hmm. R. But I actually really don't think that there's um a, like it, and and I'm actually kind of less confident that that is going to happen now because. There's so much good stuff going on in, out there in the economy that people just aren't talking about, and that I think is really, really important because consumer confidence is at is at basically the same levels as the GFC, right? GFC, we wow. thought the whole financial world was going to collapse. They're all, 
consumer sentiment's almost as bad as the start of um the start of COVID, April 2020, which is crazy. But the fact of the matter is we have record low in unemployment rates, the lowest, I think it's like 3.4% unemployment rate now, which is crazy, right? And there's record levels of business savings and, and personal savings. So cash sitting in bank accounts. So no one's no one's no one's gone broke out there. Everyone's got jobs, everyone's got savings. We've got the lowest business insolvency rate in 35 years. That's crazy. So businesses are going good too. Business insolvency is down. And international migration is pouring in as well. So in very in real terms, I don't think that there is like an economic risk uh, to Australia in a meaningful sense. Inflation is is a challenge, right? Um, but I don't. So I kind of wanted to clarify their statements because I felt like I might have actually come across as saying, "Yeah, okay, I think things are going to go bad," when that was really not what I meant at all by that statement. Does that kind of clear things up, Gabby? What do you think? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think I think it's important that you clarified it, right? Because people people interpret things their own way. Um, and I, I know you and I know that you get excited and you want to share ideas very confidently and, and kind of paint a picture very clearly because that's what, you know, that's what helps people move forward. And I think like just on the consumer sentiment piece, like consumer sentiment in its essence is like the mindset of the masses, right? So if consumer sentiment is low, what that actually means is that as a collective mindset, everyone is thinking pretty negatively about mm. The financial environment and the economy and everything and so when consumer sentiment is low it's really hard to i don't even know what i was going to say then <laughs> well i mean that's fine i mean like let me let me let me wrap it up for you because like when you're right when, when consumer sentiment is low that basically mm -hmm. means that everyone is feeling pretty shitty right everyone's got a pretty low yeah. uh a low opinion of what the what the future looks like they feel uncertain they're keeping cash in banks that they start to get scared because they don't know what the future looks like and I, I don't want to sound like a kind of like tinfoil hat kind of beating the drum about the don't listen to the media, don't listen to the media. But I mean, look, the, the, the reality is if you look at the facts, if you look at the facts, things are actually just a lot better than the kind of like doomsday story that we keep getting told. Yes, interest rates are going up, but interest rates aren't the be all and end all, <laughs> right? There's loads of other factors out there. And I mean, look, just a, another, another example is that the media keeps saying things that like, oh, the property market's crashing, but we actually did an, an analysis. And over the last six months, 53% of suburbs nationwide have consistently grown over the last over the last six months. 53% of suburbs have consistently grown over the last over the last six months, sorry, is, is what I meant to say. That so okay, so more than 50% of suburbs are growing consistently, yet the media is saying that everything's going bad. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that it's actually there's actually underlying all of this kind of noise and negativity is a really good news story. And I think it's mm. our obligation to try and show people that because, you know, like if you had a friend who was feeling a bit depressed and a bit negative, what would you do? You'd actually try and point out like all of the reasons that life is great and that and they have true reasons. This isn't like a straw man kind of conversation or, or argument where it's like, well, if we just look at these two or three things that are nice we can pretend yeah. like everything's great it's like well in actuality the body of evidence suggests that most things are actually going really really good but there's one or two things actually that can give people a little bit of stress right and i think that that one of the main things um that that i what one thing i'd like to really talk about now because it's going to lend start to lead into the conversation we really want to have today which is about interest rates and cash flow is there's there's two main characteristics that that i've learned you know i read lots of books and i've you know, speaking to lots of people, and there's two kind of main characteristics that seem to separate the most successful from the least successful. And number one is time horizon. You know, the most successful people are thinking in years and decades, right? Typically decades. That's their that's the time horizon for their goals, their big goals. They're shooting. So so they tend not to worry about um, you know, minute fluctuations or deviations mm -hmm. or emotional um, you know, 
you know, volatility and all of that kind of stuff because they've got a plan. They're executing their plan over the long term and it makes sense because it's a good plan and it's a good strategy, right? And that's how they get to their goals. The least successful are thinking like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me tomorrow, right? And the other thing is adaptability. And everyone thinks that Charles Darwin said, you know, something along like it's survival of the fittest. Everyone's heard that. Oh, it's survival of the fittest. That's it's not. That is not what he said. The actual quote, and I quote, is it is not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. That is the mm-hmm. actual quote, right? So it's actually survival of the most adaptable, right? So the most successful people have got a longer term time horizon and they're more adaptable, which means that they're more emotionally stable as well because they look at they look at all of these things and the changing environment around them and they don't lose their head. They said, that's cool. We're still going that way. Let's just like dance around a little bit. So in an environment where interest rates are going up, right, which they are, like that's cool. What is that actually, what is the biggest impact for property investors? Cash flow is kind of the biggest, biggest impact, right? Yep. And, and let's be real. Like we can kind of talk about the fact that, hey, everything's going great. You know, the economy is actually going good. There's lots of stuff to be grateful for. There's a lot of really good positive news stories, particularly in the property market. Lots of markets are growing actually very, very well. More, more markets are growing than are, than are declining, right? So it's actually more upside than downside. But let's not, let's not try and dress up the fact that, that, you know, rising interest rates do impact cash flow. And so what I thought off the back of our last conversation where we talked about, you know, uh, interest rates sort of versus inflation and we talked about the cost of real inflation and all of that kind of stuff, I thought that this could be a really cool episode for us to really dig into. go, okay, well, pragmatically, how do you adapt? How do you adapt to this environment? You want to be successful? Great. You're not going to lose your head? Cool. You either want to keep your portfolio and you want to keep it humming or you might want to add to your portfolio and keep growing your portfolio, which personally I think is a really good idea. And we can kind of talk about why that's a good idea in a moment. But how do you adapt so that you can be successful in this environment? So what do you think, Gabby? Are you ready for that? I am, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, yeah, if you are deciding, you know, is this a good time for me to be buying if you haven't invested in property before considering cash flow, you know, because a lot of people I think based on this, you know, mindset of the masses, people are scared to invest in property because, you know, they're scared that repayments are just going to keep going up and up and up and they're not sure that they can um, sustain that. And or they have a portfolio and they're not sure if they're going to be able to hold it. They're not sure if they're going to be able to add to it again with these like unknown looming interest rate creep. Um, yeah. So this is kind of like, what are some practical things you can do and put in place to, to think about that? Cool. Sounds good. What's your first tip? How do you think people should think about this? <laughs> well, I think, I think to start, it's usually like take a bit of a take a bit of a stock of where you are at, do a bit of a recce on what your current situation actually is um, as it is today. Like if you, if you don't have all of your stats together of like, actually, how much do I pay in repayments? How much net cash flow am I actually, like, am I slightly positive? Am I slightly negative? Am I very positive? Am I very negative? Figure out what that dollar amount is. That's step one, if you haven't already done that. But then it's also being able to model in like, okay, what am I actually scared of and what does that look like in numeric terms? So like I'm scared that interest rates are going to go up and up and up and up and up. What does that look like as a dollar amount and actually being able to model in like, okay, if interest rates increase by 3%, what does that look like and how does that impact my cash flow? And if you plug it in as though nothing else in your strategy changes, if you just plug in like, okay, the only thing that changes is that rates, you know, 
double, however hard you want to model, then you can at least define what it is you are trying to strategize around. Like if you have, okay, the dollar amount is an extra $500 a month or something, at least then you know what that is. And I think like you're only ever fearful if you don't know what the enemy is. Whereas if you have a clear idea of what the enemy is, then you know what you can prepare for and what you can strategize around how to conquer. So I think step one is really like defining what that enemy is, for lack of a better word, defining what it is that you are trying to prepare for before you go and freak out and go, okay, I need to try this, I need to try this, I need to try that. Just figure out like, what am I doing first step? Like, what is my game plan here? Yeah, I think I think it's a really great point. I think it's a really great point that that you that you first need to identify what the enemy is in order to then work out how to conquer the enemy. I think that's I think that's an awesome sentiment because you're right, right? Because when there's like this big esoteric uh, interest rates are rising, ah, cash flow is going to go down, ah, how scary! But like if you actually break it down and go, okay, what does that actually mean? Is it is it one thousand dollars a year? Is it two thousand dollars a year? Is it $3,000 a year? Is it $10,000 a year across the portfolio? Is it $20,000 a year across the portfolio, depending on it? This is really, really important, right? Because if you understand the quantum, then you can then you can prescribe the right solution. Because <laughs> otherwise, what you might end up doing is prescribing the wrong solution for the wrong problem. You might prescribe mm-hmm. a $20,000 solution to a $2,000 problem, which might not be necessarily a bad thing, but you might also prescribe a $2,000 solution to a $20,000 solution, which would maybe get you nowhere and cause you more stress and distress, right? So, mm. um, Or you also prescribe a solution just to kind of soothe your own emotional response in the short term. Like you're like, mm. shit, need more cash flow. Do something immediately that's going to immediately benefit your cash flow, but then that might fizzle out. And so it's, again, kind of removing that emotional response to what is happening and being a bit more logical about it. Totally. And knee-jerk reactions can actually be um, detrimental to your portfolio if they are not strategic and well thought out. So to your point, you might actually just go, I need to do something and then make a hasty decision, which could actually be massively detrimental. So what's... Go, you go, Gabby, go. I just thought, I just, such as like fixing interest rates. I think a lot of people are considering that at the moment. They're going, shit, rates are just going to keep going up and up and up, which... Need perfect knee jerk reaction would be I'm going to fix all my rates because I just think it's going to keep going up and I'm freaking out so I'm going to do that. But you know, there's downsides to fixing your rates if you're going to continue to build your portfolio over the next few years. Like there's massive break fees, break fees over that if you need to you know refinance and break that agreement over the next few years. So it's like that's something that I can see really obviously people maybe emotionally knee jerk response to. Um, these interest rates over the next couple of years. Yeah, totally. There's also other. There's also other ones. There's either like, oh my god, I need to start selling properties. I, yeah. I mean, like, like people might be like, ah, they're no longer cash flow positive. Yeah. Ah, I need to sell them, right? But the reality is, maybe you've got an asset which is going up by fifty thousand dollars a year, but it's gone down. It's gone negative cash flow by two thousand dollars a year, and it's like, okay, well, it's still making you forty eight grand a year. Is that a good thing to have, or is that a bad thing to have? Yeah. You know, and so. And but there's also another one which is actually more inaction, right? Because 
as we've already mentioned, 53% of suburbs are still going up in Australia. And in fact, we're only investing in the top 1% anyway. So, you know, if you happen to be working with Dash you're going to be in the best suburbs anyway. So whatever. But so you're going to get growth and all of these other kind of things. And choosing not to do, choosing nothing is also making a choice, right? Nothing is not nothing. Nothing is a choice, right? And I heard this great quote. Um, uh, it was from a business guy and he was talking to business owners and, and whatever. And he said something along the lines of, every year that you don't make a million dollars is a year that you've lost a million dollars, right? Because you've lost that time to be able to create that capital, right? And so that's a, mm. I was like, what a cool way to think about opportunity cost and time. Like that money you didn't make today, that's money you lost, right? Because you could have made it and you didn't make it, right? So this is an interesting thing. But there's some interesting ways that I think we can talk about um, combating this kind of stuff as well. And like, how do you think about like what the appropriate strategy is for you, depending on where your portfolio is at, depending on the size of the problem that you are trying to solve, I think that there are multiple ways that you can do it. To your point about, about fixing interest rates and potentially stalling your portfolio at the same time, depending on your position, of course, right? Depending on your financial position and your borrowing capacity and um, all of this other kind of stuff and everything like that, one interesting and counterintuitive way that you can fix negative cash flow in your portfolio is to buy more assets, right? And this is a really interesting, I actually quite like this one, right? Because um, <laughs> you do. More. no, 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 I, I like it because it's counterintuitive and also yeah. really freaking good, right? Right? Because, because one way that people might think to reduce negative cash flow in their portfolio is to sell some assets, right? Relieve some mm -hmm. of the debt burden. And the alternative way that you can think about doing it is going, okay, well, what Let's say I've let's say I've got a, a ten thousand dollar cash flow deficit in my well, let's say a five thousand dollar cash flow deficit in my portfolio now because of rising interest rates or where I think interest rates might go over the next twelve months or whatever the case may be. Okay, well, what would I need to do to put another five thousand dollars of cash flow into my portfolio? Wow, one of those solutions could be like buy a unit block, for example, right? You could potentially like. If you've already got properties, maybe they've already got equity in them. And probably if you've owned them over the last few years, they probably do, right? So, yeah. so potentially you could go, and again, not financial advice and all of that kind of stuff. This is an idea, right? You could potentially go and, you know, go way deeper into the pool and end up with a bigger and better boat, right? So you could actually, you know, actually go and buy another asset, which will give you the cash flow you need to offset any of the kind of downside risk, which is, I think, a really cool counterintuitive strategy because not only are you minimizing or you're actually reducing and and neutralizing the cash flow risk but you're actually expanding and growing your portfolio which I, you know you're going to end up mm. way way further ahead because times like this thinking counter cyclically or counter um like you know counter to the popular opinion is actually usually where most of the most of the success happens right and there's some really interesting crazy good stuff out there we actually just um for those of you who who follow along would probably understand that we have a huge data science team and we do lots of you know data and research and whatever and we've built algorithms to you know to identify the best suburbs to invest in and, and all that kind of stuff what we actually did recently is we 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 flipped our algorithms and all of our machine learning models and stuff onto the unit market and there's some amazing opportunities out there for buying like whole unit blocks it's so cool right and so therein lies an opportunity to expand and not contract and if you think about if you think about times like this, uncertainty. Um, look, and I, and I don't want to use the the big uh, big scary R word, but if you think about like times where there've been economic uncertainty, times like the GFC, times like when COVID hit, stuff like that, right? The people who made the biggest gains are the people who expanded, grew during that period when everybody else contracted. And so this, I think, could actually be a really interesting and counter cyclical play. Can I just pull on that uh, unit thread for a sec? 
you said unit blocks, but is it an also an opportunity for people to think about actual individual units? It's a good question. The short answer is yes. Is it an opportunity for people to be able to consider that? The short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is the downside with buying individual units versus buying a whole unit block is that you have uh, significantly higher holding costs and significantly less uh, overarching rights on the asset. So because you have body corporates and strata fees and all of these other kind of things, you can ostensibly get a good yield, but then a lot of that yield can be eaten away with additional costs. Um, you know, the classic thing with an apartment is you own the air inside, you own the air inside the building, but you don't own any of the building and, and basically none of the land. Yeah. Some people would argue you own like a fractional portion of the land, but I mean, you know, mm. the reality is it's um, it's significantly inhibited. But if you if that was your only option, could that be an option? Yeah, I mean, it could be an option, right? But versus buying a whole unit block, which a lot of people think, well, a whole unit block, that's like billions of dollars or something. Depending on where you're buying, you can get unit blocks for, I don't know, probably as low as like five dollars $600,000, which is still a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to like be blase about cash, but it's actually probably more affordable than a lot of people think, depending on where you're buying. And there's not that many of them, right? So this isn't something that everyone could go to, right? But there, but there's cool assets out there which can really uh, offset these kind of these kind of um, cash flow risks. So hmm. yes, you could consider. I think I think actually to answer your question a little bit more deeply, I think the more things you consider, the better, right? I think I think the whole idea here is that you should be adaptable and operate from a set of principles. And the set of principles should be like, how do you optimize growth and cash flow in your portfolio? How do you set yourself up for a life of freedom, choice and abundance? How do you make choices that are going to be aligned with that whilst minimizing risk along the way and help you to get to your goals sooner, right? So the way that I approach everything is usually that everything is on the table as an option, right? Yeah. Then you apply deductive logic to work out what is the best solution based on the set of circumstances and the environment that you're in all of that kind of stuff. That is kind of the approach because there's a million ways you can do it, but you have to you have to really assess what what the real impacts of those kind of things are. Personally, I'm a fan of unit blocks because you own the whole asset. You can do away with body corporate and strata. It's kind of like a big house with multiple incomes. Like it's pretty cool. Yeah, and again on that um, deductive logic, like you need to if you're in a situation now where you need to consider the impacts of like you're in a like problem kind of challenging situation where you're like, how do I improve my situation here my cash flow is being squeezed what can i do you do want to start with that brainstorming approach of like what are all of the possible options and not put your own biases or even like what we've talked about in the past like you just put everything out on the table and then work back from that go that doesn't make sense because this doesn't fit me and i'm that mm. i um align with that and those kind of things yeah i was just thinking about the units because i know like unit blocks you know, that five, six hundred thousand might still be out of reach for people. So I'm thinking more of like a, at a lower price point, if people are struggling with cash flow, noting as well, like the downsides that you just mentioned and historically less capital growth on units, generally speaking, standalone units. But if the strategy is I need to combat, I need to add a massive cash flow asset into my portfolio um, and I can only afford, you know, three, four hundred thousand. Uh, again, coming from that brainstorm perspective, like that might be something to chuck on the whiteboard and and sit with. I wholeheartedly agree, right? And so the best strategy is the one that gives your portfolio what it needs at the time it needs in order to continue to move you towards your goals. That's the best yeah. strategy, right? And that's the adaptability piece, which is why we've never been um, super dogmatic of like, you must buy properties and add granny flats to them. That's the way to success. You know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, that's a 
that's a thing that you can pop in there for sure. We could have crushed it if we did that. (laughs) (laughs) We're the granny flat guys. The granny flat guys. Um, But you know, like granny flats. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's 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 really about going. Okay, what does my portfolio need, right? And at times, your portfolio is going to need growth, right? And maybe during those growth phases as well, you can you can you can stomach a little bit of negative cash flow because I would say as well, right? It's not Mm. all about cash flow, right? It is all about actually what is going to get you to your goal. Right. As much as we we talk about having, you know, cash flow positive properties and everything, that's actually kind of like there's a bigger there's a bigger game that is being played. And that is how do you get to your destination? How do you how do you achieve a life of freedom, choice, and abundance? And what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And so where I think one where one of the ways I think people can go wrong in this environment is is looking at a property which is ostensibly a great property in a great area which is going to grow fantastically which ostensibly still has a really good yield you know five you know five five and a half six six and a half seven percent yield or something like that but may not be cash flow positive on p and i or or some other factor like that and therefore people go well it's not cash flow positive ain't buying that thanks interest rates it's like well I yep. think you probably need to look pragmatically at what the what the opportunity actually is there. You know, when when the when the median when the national average um yield is like two to three percent, right? And you're buying something that's like five and a half to six percent or something like that, it's you've got to remember, like actually this is this is a unique opportunity, right? And so the environment has changed short term. That doesn't mean that you should reject good opportunities short term because you should be playing a longer game. Back to the point that I made earlier. That asset, that asset may make you fifty grand in a year, but cost you two thousand dollars in negative cash flow. Mm. But you're still going to be forty eight thousand dollars up, right? And so turning down forty eight thousand dollars for the sake of two, or turning down fifty thousand dollars for the sake of two thousand dollars is a really bad way to build wealth. Like that just does not make yeah. any sense. But people can get fixated on on short term metrics without thinking about what the macro environment looks like. Because the other point that we've got to remember is that interest rates won't stay up forever. Historically speaking, they have gone up, and they've gone up plenty of times in the past. They've gone up plenty of times in the past, and they've gone up a lot in the past. There's been times where they've gone up three, four, five, six, seven percent in a very short period of time, right? And I don't believe we're actually going to go that high, right? But they typically only only go up for like you know between a year and two years. So I'm so which why I'm so confident when I say I don't think we're going to have high interest rates in two years' time, right? So, so these things are short term short-term situations that people really need to consider. And then you can actually go, okay, well, what if that was the opportunity in front of me? If someone said, um, it's fairly, you know, if I, or sorry, let me rephrase that. If I believed I had a fairly good, uh, if I believed it was fairly likely that I would make a significant return over a 12-month period, but it may cost me short-term in cash, um, what would I need to adjust in other parts of my life or in other parts of my portfolio to make that decision still viable because I know that the upside is um, is significantly better than the downside risk. And that's how th- I think people should be thinking about it. That comes down to cost of living stuff as well, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah, I was just thinking about the cash flow piece. Like to be transparent, like we've probably, we've definitely made a rod for our own back here where we've historically really harped on about cash flow and how important positive cash flow is. And it definitely is, but it's something to consider. Like in that P&I situation that you just explained, like somebody gets, an opportunity to purchase a property and you know it's two thousand dollars cash flow negative because they're paying p and i whereas if you consider like if like if you're choosing to pay p and i in this environment you're probably going to struggle to get positive cash flow like net positive cash flow whereas if you 
took out those the principal repayments and you're sitting on just interest only repayments you could end up net positive and so just that consideration like is this the right environment for me to be paying principal and yeah i was just thinking like i think we've definitely <laughs> in the past because cash flow is so important but the thing about all of these principles is it they only ever apply if they're relevant to the current environment and the current economy and the current strategies that suit you so um yes wherever you can shoot for positive cash flow but as you said like if the if the end goal is that you're still going to have this asset that grows amazingly strongly like can you stomach a little bit of like net negative for a year or two or however long it takes to kind of put some other strategy in place that gets it back positive yeah and so i think just particularly on that like p and i piece like they, is that an option that you can consider instead of having this belief that you need to pay down the principal all the time because a lot of people still hold those beliefs um consider could i do interest only in this environment that could be a tactic that you can test out i i wholeheartedly agree now there's reasons that people might do p and i you can actually generally often get more borrowing capacity if you do P&I versus yeah, uh, interest only and stuff like that. So it could be an opportunity to allow people to move forward and then be like, well, I can choose to buy a property, but I have to do it on P&I or maybe I just want to or whatever. The thing to remember about P&I is that that is profit that you're putting onto the balance sheet, right? So the way to think about it, right, is effectively um, the bank owns shares in your business, right? Right, they own equity, right? So, so if you go and buy shares in a in a company like BHP, what are you buying? You're buying equity, right? Mm -hmm. So they own equity in your, they own a, like the majority proportion of equity in your asset. So what you're saying is that my, I want to buy back shares in my in my asset, right? And so typically the way you want to do that is you would really want the asset to produce enough cash to be able to buy back its own shares without putting your hand in your pocket. But if you're choosing to buy back that equity at your at like at your at your choice, right? Then that may be cash out of pocket, but that is not an expense. That it's not an expense. It's an asset. Yeah. You're you're actually you're actually if you if you're negative cash flow two grand a, a year because you're because you're on P and I versus interest only, that may the way to think about that is not like whoop I'm losing two thousand dollars. It's actually I'm actually reinvesting two thousand dollars in buying back yep. more of the asset. I'm actually increasing my equity stake in the asset. So it's an in, that in and of itself is an investment, right? And so mm. I think that people get lost in it. They're like, "Well, the mortgage costs a lot of money, and I've got to give all this money to the bank." It's like, uh, actually, you're the just cost is the interest. Yeah, you, yeah, the cost is the interest. The principal payments are you just buying back the shares and buying back the equity in the asset. So you're increasing. Your net worth and your your net asset base, which is with something where I think a lot of people uh, a lot of people forget. But I'm mindful of time. What other tricks can people do uh, to to actually think about increasing cash flow in their portfolio? Because I think this is a really good one, right? So how do we like cool buying unit blocks is great if you can kind of do that thing. But what about actually <laughs> some real some real strategies? So you talked to, so we we've kind of talked about um, potentially looking at your loan structures, right? That's a good option, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe thinking about should you go to interest only in a high interest rate period so that you can. Um, mitigate some of that downside risk of cash flow. That's a good one. Another one you could think about is actually potentially doing a value add, right? So there mm -hmm. might be an opportunity on your property. And of course, if you've got tenants in the property, you may need to wait to the end of the lease or you may need to, there's obviously, you know, stuff around this, but potentially you could actually do a small cosmetic renovation, right? Which may not be, which may only cost you ten to $15,000, which is a significantly less money than going buying another house. But in doing so, you could actually increase the rent on that asset and, and, and get more rent for the same asset 
and actually recoup some of the costs and then offset some of the uh, some of the rising interest rate costs. That's one way. That's good. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, and again, it's coming back to that doing a recce of where you are at, including like what am I say? What is my total cash savings sitting in the bank right now? Because then instead of holding on to that, you can think about how do I deploy that in a way that is going to return and improve my cash flow, such as a small cosmetic reno, or if you've got a bit more cash, like do I want to do a granny fight? Like considering everything with the building industry right now as well, like don't just go and do that because that might take a bit of time, but thinking about these little ways that you can improve the asset so that you get more out of it using the asset that you currently have, which is your cash savings. And I think that that also comes down going back to the P and I piece. It's like the P and I, like you said, the P part of that, the principal part of that, is you reinvesting into the asset, almost forced savings. And so in this environment, perhaps savings is not a priority for you if you're trying to maximize cash flow. You're just trying to make sure that okay, now is not a time to be building and building, building my savings when my cash flow is being hit. So thinking about how do I actually retain what I can and control what I can and deploy it in better ways that is going to improve my cash flow. Yeah. So that comes back to that the value adds piece. Like if you can do something small with the assets that you have being cash, um, that is that's definitely an opportunity that people can think about. Totally. And another thing you mentioned like you talked about like for savings there and that kind of jogged my thoughts on savings in general, right? So mm-hmm. right now the Interest, uh, the interest that you learn on savings in the bank account is really, really, low, really, really low. It's like whatever, whatever the whatever the cash rate is, one, one, two percent, right? Pretty low. Yep. But the cost of debt is actually pretty high, right? And so when the cost of debt is high, you can actually think about investing in debt as investing in an asset as well, where you're getting the same return as the cost of debt would be. So two ways to think about that, right? So if you've got a credit card, for example, and let's say that's got a twenty percent uh, interest rate on it, if you owe money on that credit card. Every time you put a dollar on that credit card and pay down that pay down that debt, you're effectively getting a twenty percent per annum return on the dollar that you put in that on that card, right? Twenty percent mm-hmm. per annum is a pretty bloody re- good return on capital, right? A pretty good bloody good return on cash, right? You're not going to get that in the share market typically, right? So that can be a really cool way to go. Ooh, where have I got debt liabilities, and could I? What is the cost of that debt? Because that is if if I pay that debt down. I am actually earning that return on my own money by inversely taking that earning potential away from the creditor, right? Or the credit, the, the lender, whatever. Hmm. So another way to think about that actually is a really, really cool one, right? Because if you've got offsets, uh, offset accounts on your on your mortgages, on your, you know, on your on your investment properties, on your home or whatever, you can actually push all of your savings into your offset accounts, right? Because that is actually going to reduce down the cost of your repayments. And you're effectively making a return on your capital that is the equivalent of the interest rate that you're getting charged, right? So one of the best ways to offset cash uh, cash flow deficits is actually go if you've got cat if you've got savings sitting in your bank account, it's effectively doing nothing. Inflation is actually eating that away. So whatever whatever the capital return that you're getting on on that could be a couple of percent. Inflation is currently whatever five six percent, whatever the case may be. So you're actually in real returns going ne- in a real return going negative on your cash, right? So it doesn't make sense. However, you could push all of that cash into into kind of debt replacement strategies. So put it into an offset, for example, and you're going to effectively be making the cost of the interest rate back as a return on capital, which is really, really smart move. And so I think in the last episode, we mentioned our portfolio had gone um, like slightly negative by whatever, a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever. And so we did exactly that. We said, okay, cool. Well, where's all our cash? 
and just started throwing all of that into the offset accounts to offset that downside risk. All good. And in fact, I know I know a lot of other people. I know, well, I've spoken to probably two or three other um, very successful investors who've done the same thing. They said, "Yeah, cool. We've like we've got all our cash sitting in offset. So wherever we see one of our properties." Might, they track all their financials of their properties really, really closely. Wherever we see our properties might be going a little bit negative, we just top that up with a bit of cash and an offset and, and happy days, we're all good. And so that they don't really need to worry about it, which is another really, really good strategy. Yeah, that's funny. That actually reminds me of a video I saw of um, Warren Buffett a couple of weeks ago where you know someone had come to him with like $5,000 or something asking, hey, what do I, what can I do? How can I invest in this? And he said, well, do you have any debt? And she said, yes, I have a credit card, but it's got 17%. He's like, Put your five thousand dollars and pay down that credit card because nothing I can do is going to get you seventeen percent returns. So it's that same mindset of like, if you have a debt that you pay seventeen percent on, it's the exact same impact on your cash. At the end of the day, it's your cash that in either situation is being affected. So you're better to pay that down rather than trying to chase some seventeen percent return outside of that. So I think it's yeah, if you if you have debt, like definitely consider how can I minimize that in this environment rather than, you know, not either, not rather than, but in, in a dance with, in both, um, thinking about the debt side, but then also obviously the investment side. Yeah. And just to clarify, the debt we're talking about is non-income producing debt, right? So yeah. credit cards, car loans, things like that, right? Because it got producing debt or um, debt on an, on, on an asset, which is going to grow, is actually still good debt, right? And putting and to the same by the same token, if your interest rate on your investment property is six percent and you're chucking your money in offset, you're still making like a six percent return on your capital, right? Which is still pretty good, right? So, mm. what's it? What's another move that we could make, Gabby, in this environment? Uh, I think maybe there's the element of like you can improve the top line, right? So we're talking about how do you reduce costs and all the things, but then you think how do I improve my rent? So we touched on doing potential value adds that you could charge a little bit more, but even like have you spoken with your property manager to, to see is there a possibility to increase the rent? Because as we know, like rents are still increasing phenomenally fast. Have you done a rent review recently? Have you increased the rent recently? Which is a tricky thing for people to think about because it's not usually top of mind because you have a property manager who looks after the portfolio and you just kind of trust that that's going up over time. But doing a rent review is a really good place um, to start with this because they might do a rental assessment of what your property would currently get in the current environment as of today um, and come back saying, hey, look, we can actually think that when we release this, you can charge, you know, $20, $30 more. Um, and that's, in essence, it's largely that net into your, into your pocket after like property management fees and everything. But that's, you know, starting at the top line of that equation, uh, definitely something that I think people should look at. Yeah, and we actually had a situation recently ourselves where we had tenants who'd only been in a property for like, I don't know, I'm going to say like less than six months, like maybe three months or something like that. Like they really haven't been in there that long at all. Proactively, the tenants actually requested, they said, hey, can we increase the rent? <laughs> Which sounds crazy, but they said, look, can we increase the rent, but can we lock it in for another 12 months? And so they increased the rent by, uh, I think, 30, 40 bucks um, mm. a week. Which was pretty good, they said, because they could tell, they could see what was going on. They were feeling yep. uncertain, so they were going. They were like, they really proactively and hats off to them. Thought, how can we lock in future savings? I thought this was really cool. So they actually came back to us. Now we could have it was if it was less than it's probably fair market rent for today, right? But um, it's going to be pretty cheap by the time 
the the lease finishes up. And they know that too, which is why they said, cool, let's crank it up a bit, but let's lock it in for another 12 months so they've got security around their own finances. So there could be an opportunity for you to just like explore that option um, with your tenants or with your property manager and just say, hey, look, we know that rents are going up a lot. Uh, we know that people are feeling a little uncertain. So if anyone wants to renegotiate their rent and lock it in for another 12 months, um, then then we're open to it as well. It's not about going to your tenants and going, we're going to screw you, give us all your money. It's like not that at all, but there's a way that tenants and um, and property owners and property investors can work harmoniously and, and synchronously together to achieve a common goal. You know, you've got to remember that most tenants are good people and um, want to live in a great place, great house, and, you know, like we're all in it for the same reasons. So that's another opportunity there to, to potentially increase your rent. Cool. Any other thoughts, Gabby? Um, I'm just looking at your notes. I see you've got one here about Blue Chip Playbook. Oh, what is something so, okay, that people so, can think about? All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so this is a really good one, right? So um, I want to preface this by saying this is not a strategy that I think people should go and do. However, what is interesting is um, people who invest in blue chip properties, like super blue chip properties, like buying, buying properties in Bondi and all of that kind of stuff. One of the strategies that they deploy in order to be able to make up for the negative cash flow is that on the assumption that their asset grows, and let's say it grows by like whatever, a couple hundred grand a year, they actually then refinance some of the equity out and use that cash that they've refinanced out to actually pay the shortfall of the, um, of the cash flow, right? Basically pay the debt. Now, mm. It's a pretty broken strategy long term, in my opinion. Like it's not a it's not a good long term solution because you're effectively going into a doom loop of of debt and serviceability, and it's not a it's not a good place to be. However, however, right? Could this? And again, this goes back to the idea of like putting all options on the table and then looking at strategically what is going to be the best move for you and your family and everything like that. If there was something going on in your life and you knew that you were going to um, really struggle with the um, cash flow situation, but you had a little bit of borrowing capacity available, could you take some equity out of your asset and then keep that keep that aside to literally pay the uh, pay the repayments? It's an option, right? Again, I'm not advocating that everyone go and do this because it's not a good long-term strategy, but it could be a short-term strategy to allow you to release some of the capital from your asset, get it liquid, and then use that liquidity to then cover the shortfall or downfall if that's something that you needed to do in your portfolio. So that is a, a, another counterintuitive way that you could potentially think about offsetting some of the risk here. So where I think a lot of people can go wrong, though, um, just sort of moving off, I think we've got a good few tips there. And by the way, if you've got other tips and you, that you want to share, then you can email them into til at dashdot.com.au. That's til at dashdot.com.au. We'd love to hear them because um, there's obviously loads of ways. You can also look at your cost of living and stuff like that. But where I think a lot of people could go wrong here um, is changing their um, overarching you know, or actually making poor strategic decisions. And we kind of talked about that earlier because I know that we've had people sort of come to work with us and stuff who have said things like, well, what if interest rates go up to 7%? I need to buy a property that has a 10 or 11 or a 12% gross yield, which absolutely you can buy those properties. But if that is the single thing that you're focusing on, the likelihood is you're focusing on not, not a holistically good investment strategy. You're just saying, where can I get that number? Right. And you could end up buying a subpar asset in a subpar location, which actually could go down in value and, and be, a, be a negative outcome for you overall because you're fixating on a specific and individual number versus looking at the macro and going, okay, what do I do need what do I need to do to succeed long term? So I think that's just one little point that I want to put in there. I just want to add, um, I think as well, like going back to what I said about the philosophies and the briefs that you kind of set for your own strategy are 
amazing, but they're only ever relevant if they're relevant to the current environment. So there's no point chasing 10% yields if the type of asset that gets 10% yields at, in the current environment is not a very strong asset, you know, not in the right location, doesn't have good growth prospects, those kind of things. And I think just to plug what we do, like, it's one thing that is really good about working with our team is because you can we can come to the table and collaborate on a brief um, for the next purchase, but it's also factoring in what are we currently seeing on the ground in the current environment that actually makes sense because, you know, two years ago, it might have made sense to have this flat brief that might not actually work in the same uh, context now. So, yeah, I think just that absolutely don't get like gung-ho on I need this particular yield and like screw everything else and think about like holistically what do I need the p- property to do? Do I still need it to grow? Yes, <laughs> because I'm investing in property and that's what I believe is the best thing to do. Um, but then also factoring in like how does that work in the current environment that we're in um, rather than just getting caught up in details of <laughs> things I believe. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's also going back to kind of like the overarching premise of this episode. It's about understanding what are the levers you can pull in your portfolio in order to achieve the same or similar outcome without deviating so far from your strategy that you end up somewhere that you don't want to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so that means looking at all of the options, including looking at your own cost of living. I know like inflation is going up. Inflation is going up. So cost of living is, is going up, right? So it could be a time for you to start to consider like, okay, where are the costs in my life and do those costs need to be there? And, um, you know, to borrow from, um, I think it's Marie Kondo, is this bringing me joy? Like a lot of the things we have in our uh, in our lives don't necessarily, like they're there, but they're like, if you really cook it down, it's like, is that actually something that I need right now? Is that something that is giving me joy? Is it serving me? Is it is it taking me closer towards my goal? Right, because you know, let's not beat around the bush. Right, there's a lot going on at the moment. Inflation's up, interest rates are up. You know, it's it's not like everyone's gotten fat off the green pastures of the last sort of eighteen months, and now we're transitioning into a different phase. And so, in order to do that, you need to adapt too. You need to adapt how you're thinking about what what your level of commitment is to your goals, uh, why it's important to you, uh, what you want to do to get there. How how dedicated are you to achieving those goals? How much are you prepared to think for yourself to achieve that outcome, right? And so, not and again, everyone's situation is different. For some people, it could just be as simple as going, you know what, we're going to eat out a little less, um, and we're going to start to uh, re- rediscover our joy for cooking at home. That could be one thing, right? Uh, for other people, it could be like, well, I'm paying a hell of a lot of rent to live in Sydney, for example. Could I move somewhere else? where the rent is like half as much and potentially I get a bigger house and a nicer place to live, right? So then that would be ge- geographic arbitrage to reduce your your living expenses. You know, there's and there's loads of different ways that you can think about doing, doing that kind of stuff without, and again, we have never been advocates of, you know, eating beans on toast, living a fire life ty- lifestyle and, you know, scraping everything, living like a monk, you know, holes in your shoes don't spend any money on anything and save every single dollar i just think that's a it's a shitty way to live because life should be full of joy at every moment and you've got to you've got to find the joy sometimes because joy doesn't come from just spending money but you've also got to make sure that you're living a life in in accordance with the way that you want to live it because who knows how long you're going to be here right so but you can question what that actually means right and then you can say okay well is this still serving me in the way that it was serving me once? Am I still getting out of this the, what I wanted to get out of it? And could I find a different way to 
to get a different outcome that is going to keep me aligned with my goals and allow me to move with the change of the season because this is a different season and all seasons pass, right? We've been in summer, you know, we're now, we're now, you know, moving into a different season. And so, you know, understanding that and adapting to the environment is, is I think the key to success. Absolutely. Cool. Gabby, anything else you want to add for this episode? No, I hope it's been impactful and I hope that we've given you some things to, you know, just A, think about, but also practically put in place and go, okay, what am I actually fearful of and defining what is potentially, what are the actual changes that are actually going to happen in my portfolio? What is my savings amount right now? Like how much cash do I have? How much equity do I have? What are my loans? How much do I spend on this? And then bringing in that like cost of living side of things as well, like, oh, actually, you know what? It's been a pretty good two years. So my costs have blown out a little bit. I've gotten a little bit fat in my lifestyle. And I actually find with that stuff, a lot of the, like, you get quick wins even just by bringing awareness to it. I think like that's what I find personally with anything. It's like as soon as you start paying attention to something, you're like, hmm, being a little bit sloppy here with this decision. So I think, yeah, those points just like doing, again, doing that assessment of like, where am I? What are all the factors that are going into this point? And then testing out some of these tactics. I think that's going to be really impactful. Totally. Awesome. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, we'll leave it there. If you've got any thoughts or comments or any feedback, send it through to til at dashdot.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but until next time, we'll see you soon. See you.